Hey, Frank here with the Everyday Sniper, uh, coming at you from beautiful Denver, Colorado. Uh, nice weather out here today. Mike's unfortunately indoors working, and he's over at Mile High. I kind of recommend you guys give him a ring over there. The uh, number is pretty easy to remember. It's 303-255-9999. Call up, ask for Mike. Say, hey, man, what do you got for me? And, and you know, buy some. That, that, that'll get him more time off to do more podcasts. But uh, anyway, we got a lot of really good questions. And a lot of really specific questions came in. So I kind of want to go through some buying guide information with the stuff that's more focused on an individual's request. Now, you know, it's we're trying to do a little bit of big picture here where we're talking about things in a more generic way and going down and making your choices a little bit simpler. But um, we have a tip buying guide for scopes on Sniper's Hide. And it's there because, I mean, there's so many different scopes. Uh, manufacturers are constantly coming out with new stuff. They're constantly upgrading and changing everything. So the scope industry is forever in flux. I mean, you're going to ask about a specific model or something to that effect. It, it gets a little harder for us to talk in general terms to everybody about a specific example. Um, yeah, you know, new stuff like Leopold came out with their new... the. Um, HD5 or whatever they're calling it, and, and Mile High does have them. You can call and ask for that. But here's some considerations um, that you should talk about when asking a community, a forum, Facebook, whatever the case may be, on scope buying advice. Number one, we want to know what's the platform for the scope. Is it a rifle, semi-automatic? What what's your what what's the scope going to go on? What kind of rifle? Then what caliber are you shooting? Is it a 22 or is it a 338? You know, where, where are you going to be caliber-wise? Um, what's your intended use for the scope? Is it going to be PRS-type events, NRL? Is it bench rest? Is it shooting on your own? Is it for, um, you know, steel, paper? What is the uh, intended use of this scope? And then... What are your typical conditions? Bright daylight, you're going to go nighttime, daytime, you're, you're hunting animals with night vision. You know, we need to know what the concept and, and what you're typically going to shoot in. And then there's um, specifics, like do you want a front focal plane or second focal plane? Does the tube size matter? You know, you go up to the new uh, zero compromise, there are 36 uh, mil tube where most are 34 or 30. And, you know, like the Heinzel is 36. So now you got to look at what works and what fits for that. Um, how big is your objective? 50, 56. Is it going on a, a platform that has a flat rail? Or is it just a regular, you know, typical uh, type rifle with a, with a short uh, base and, you know, a stock? So if you're going to put it in a chassis with a rail system, that's going to matter with heightens and different things that you're doing. You know, specific to you, that, that's something you could PM us about. Um, but general questions that come across, you know, then we, I think that's a better venue to answer. Uh, you know, I can go out and say, hey, John, for you, you want to buy this SIG scope. I mean, that's going to be great. But, you know, what about Bob? He might want a Schmidt or a Night Force. Well, what about the guys with the Collis? Well, what's going on with new Zero Compromise? 
So the more details you can give us, the better it is for us to answer these questions. Honestly, it's moving so fast in Precision Rifle. Everybody's seeing just how popular we are, and, and it, it's getting to be where I can't memorize this stuff anymore. It's just so damn hard to understand, you know, who's changing what in every minute in the gen versions of different stuff coming out, uh, caliber considerations, barrel lengths, all these different things. So all I'm going to ask is that you get a little bit more detailed when it comes to the questions. But we did get a question that I want to jump into and answer. And this one I talk about in my classes all the time. And it's the difference between a cold bore. What are the cold bore variations that a shooter has to worry about? And I break it down into three versions, okay? There's a clean cold bore. There's a fouled cold bore. And then there's the shooter with a cold body, cold mind. And that, believe it or not, is probably the most common that we see out there. Just to kind of back up historically and talk about this a little bit. Back in the day, you know, there was only limited barrel technology. They weren't doing things very well. You weren't getting multiple laps in, uh, you know, a pre-lap, a post-lap, all these different things. And so cold bores were pretty common. Today we've learned it's not common to have a cold bore shift. That's not something you should be looking at and going, well, that's a normal thing. Let me think about that. It's not normal. And we know right off the bat it's not a heat-related thing. If it's a heat-related thing, it would continue to walk because the more rounds you shoot, the hotter your barrel is going to get. It doesn't go to like 150 degrees and stop. It keeps going up and up and up and up, and it you know starts coming out from the chamber, heads down uh, to the end, and, and you're going to see heat develop in there. So where you're running into problems are stresses within the barrel. Is there a problem that it wasn't properly heat relieved, you know, heat stress relieved? And today we see much more effort put into uh, relieving the stress in a barrel. Where you used to see it a lot are with like the button cuts. There's so much you can't do to a buff button cut rifle barrel because you're pulling and stretching material out of there. You're not cutting it away like a rifle cut. Um, we tend to default to Bartlin a lot. Everybody's Bartlin, Krieger, things like that. Those are rifle cut. So what's happening is you're taking and you're cutting the material out and you're removing it. With a button cut, it's exactly like it sounds. It, it's a button that is pulled through the barrel, and it's cutting the slices in there, or your, your lands and grooves. Now, here's the problem. It's not cutting. It's just pushing material out of the way. So if it's not properly stress-relieved, you can run into a situation with them. And a lot of mass-produced, you know, factory barrels, which don't get that lapping and get that work done, also will run into situations. Now, a clean cold bore is a situation where the rifle barrel is clean. It's been, all the copper's been removed, the carbon's been taken out. And when you're shooting it, what you're having to do is basically re-season the barrel like a frying pan. You take the old cast iron pans and you don't clean them. You just rinse them off a little bit and kind of get the big chunks out of the way. But you're letting that stuff get baked into the pan. Well, there's good copper 
and there's bad copper. Good copper is filling in certain things and goes into places where the tooling mark might pick up on it, whereas bad copper affects accuracy. If you pull all that good copper out, it's going to take a shot or two to put it back in before the barrel is happy again. It wants to go to its safe place. Its safe place has a little blanket of copper and it's tiny amounts. I mean, we're talking microscopic here. And that is keeping the rifle where it wants to be in a consistent place. That's why guys like to have fouled barrels. Where even if you go to certain F-Class matches and coming down to Raton, you'll see this quite a bit. Um, early on in Sniper's Hide history, we were shooting F-Class stuff. We were building rifles for F-Class events before they changed the target size and made them smaller. We were a little bit more competitive with our tactical rifles. Now you need that dedicated rifle. And when we were still competitive, you'd see the top F-Class guys. They'd shoot their string of fire. They'd be all done for the day. Then they'd go to clean their rifle. What people didn't see was they would follow them for the next day's event. So rather than use their sighters to follow the rifle, they would go and clean it. Then shoot three to five rounds, depending on how they knew their rifle. And follow it up. And then the next day, they can shoot their string. They can clean it again. And then they can go back with a fouled rifle. If you have a cold bore shift with a fouled rifle, you have two choices here. It's either a barrel with stress in it, because that's not a normal condition, or it's cold shooter, cold mind. And I'm going to get into that in a second, but let's talk that clean cold bore and, and finish through with that. So if you clean your rifle and you have to go cold bore with it, you may have a shift, and it may not be very big between quarter, half minute off center, but you still may see a shift where you're putting in that copper that wants to be there. So what I recommend is depending on how often you're going to use that rifle is shoot it up, get it ready, and clean it, then follow it. A lot of times, like example, before I go to competitions, I don't clean my rifles a lot. I'm, I'm in that, you know, my 6.5s, that 250 to 500 mark. My 308, it'll be in the 500 to 1,000, you know, round mark before I clean it. The 6 millimeters are in that 250 zone as well because they're fast and, and, and they're kind of smeared. My 338s, I'm back into that 500 round mark uh, for cleaning them. So... I'll go out, I'll dope a rifle up for a match, I'll get everything ready, and I'll say, okay, I'm going to go and travel tomorrow, and I'm going to get in an airplane. Now, I know I'm going to get there a day early, and they have that open range day, and I'm going to fire some shots, but I'll clean it before, and then not clean it till I'm over and finished with the match, which would be about that 250 round mark for a lot of these matches. Even with my work up the next day, if I do anything on the Friday before, I'm only shooting maybe... 50, 80 rounds of that. So in all, I'm shooting about 300 rounds for a competition, and I'm not cleaning it till it's over. That should take care of that clean cold bore. Not a factor. Doesn't happen. Doesn't exist. Rifles fouled. Now, once I, I'm using all my good stuff here in my fouled barrels, I don't see a shift. There is ways to get around um, that in we're going to talk about with the, with the shooter, but if you're seeing a shift, 
in a fouled rifle with a cold bore, and we know it's not you, there's strefs in that barrel. I'm going to tend to swap that barrel out pretty quick. I'll shoot maybe not all the way up to its barrel life, but I'll shoot up to maybe three quarters of its barrel life, and I'm going to swap it out as soon as possible. I want to get rid of that barrel because I don't like it. I mean, I'm not beyond swapping barrels in the two to 300 round zone if I don't like it. And that, that's a possibility out there. So now, think about this. You got a foul barrel, you got a cold bore shift, and we need to figure out, is it you or is it the rifle? So here's how we're going to do it. Cold shooter, cold mine. What a cold bore deviation is when it's shooter induced is a first round flinch. And I hate to break it to you, but yes, you are flinching. What it is, is we're so excited to shoot. We want to get out there and it's like, yay, I got a day off. I'm going to go shoot. Happy day for me. And it takes you a round or two to kind of get that worked out of your system and to say, hey, I'm back to my normal place. And how we came about this, and this happened at Rifles Only, we, we started seeing it was shooter, 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 shooter induced. I mean, we blame a lot of stuff on the shooters that other people don't because we're the weak link in the system in a lot of ways. Left to their own devices, these rifles are not going to go out there and fuck you if everything's put together correctly, okay? It, it, when you're shooting that five-shot group and shot number three or four goes out of the group, like you got shot one, and okay, good. Shot two, touch it. Hey, man, everything's money. Shot three, touch it again. It's like, yes, this group is going on my refrigerator. My wife's going to see it when she gets home from work, and she's going to say, my man's got it going on. I'm going to pleasure him sexually tonight because this stuff's all good. Look at this group on the refrigerator. I want him to do that to me. And if you're a woman, it's the other way around. So you go and you get ready for shot number four. And what you don't realize is you moved. You're moving. You're adjusting. Because in your brain, you're going through all these scenarios about how this is going to go on your refrigerator. And how it's going to get everything all warm and cozy when you get home. Because it's going to be really darn impressive. It's your hole-in-one shot if you were a golf guy. So... Four goes out, and you're like, God damn it, group's blown. I'm not going to show anybody. Oh, well, I'm just going to shoot number five and be done. And five goes right back in the same hole. You're like, what the hell is going on? Now, this is a conversation Jacob and I had for years, and it goes on, and it goes back down to rifles only. That rifle did not just decide to screw you. It didn't say, I'm going to ruin Frank's day. I'm going to ruin Frank's chance at being orally pleasured at home instead what i'm gonna do is i'm gonna do something different well guess what the rifle didn't say any of that the rifle has no clue who you are you did it it's the shooter so when we started looking at this with groups that were getting thrown out well now we take it to the cold bore level we know we got a filed rifle they didn't clean it we know everything's good we put it away yesterday it was money now, all of a sudden, it's got a shot thrown. And it's usually that one thrown first shot and then four perfect shots. They're all touching. Everything's money where it needs to be. Cold shooter. How we tested it? Well, we got a second rifle. And we had guys with the first shots of the day come out and then go and check their 
groups with a different rifle and then go to the one they think they had a cold bore that's got a foul barrel to it. And we found if we shot you five rounds beforehand and then moved you to this rifle, the cold bore went away. It, it was illuminating like nobody's business that th this cold bore shift disappeared when we put somebody on a rifle first and then their cold bore rifle second. Because we're getting that flinch out of our system. We're getting worked in. So then we said, well, how do we address this to help inoculate people from this first round flinch, from this cold bore, cold shooter, cold mine? Dry fire. Let me say that again. Dry fire. If you dry fire beforehand, it is like getting a shot and inoculating you from that cold bore flinch. Now the caveat, big bomb. Remember I talked about uh, these ballistic guys need to put bombs? I'm going to put a bomb. Given time and opportunity, dry fire. Keep your head in the game. Don't just lift the bolt and drop it. Do it like you're shooting a real shot. Dry fire. Dry fire will inoculate, inoculate you to that first round flinch. So we move from shooting a second rifle first, observing the change that our cold bore now disappeared, and then going to where we can repeat this with our primary rifle. The dry fire is a good first step. The more you do it, the more you'll realize it's you. And when you get it out of your head and get rid of it and put yourself in the right mind space, it'll disappear. I don't even think about it anymore. I'll still dry fire given time and opportunity if I can. I mean, I've shot like the, the matches here, um, that little prairie dog match at Colorado Rifle Club. And it's pretty funny because I'll spend the whole relay when I'm on the gun dry practicing until the, you know, the scorekeepers one person off of me. And then I'll go and I'll, you know, I'll take my live shot. You got to keep your head in the game. You can't load your mag till you're ready. You don't want to break your position. This goes back to a fundamental. The fundamental of staying engaged with the rifle, keeping your head on the cheek, and being able to operate without coming off the gun. I want you looking through the scope. I want you doing everything you're supposed to be doing from loading mags to, you know, to inserting them in the rifle in the action and, and getting everything ready to go without coming off the gun. That's a huge key practice point in my classes. Stay on the gun, don't come off, don't prairie dog, don't do all these things that are causing bad habits. A cold bore is a bad habit. It shouldn't be there. If it's a mechanical issue, you'll normally see it walk. It may not be that perfect four round group with one out. It may be one out, one a little further, closer, touching, closer, and, and they kind of tend to string. As well, if, you, if, one, if you're one of these guys that sees two rounds in one hole, two rounds in one hole, and then one round, where you have three groups, two touching, two touching, one separate. Maybe it's two touching, three together. You fidget. You moved. You shifted your body subconsciously and you changed up positions, odds are you weren't comfortable behind your rifle. So you changed position after the first two shots. And then you repositioned yourself, you readjusted, 
And now you got a group that's maybe only a quarter inch away from that first one, but it's not the same. It's multiple groups. That's usually a rifle setup problem in the fact that you're uncomfortable in moving. This all relates. Shooter. It all relates to the fact that we're the weak link. It all relates to the fact it's a training scar. We need to fix these things. We need to not doing the same thing over and over again, thinking we're doing it right, but we're really doing it wrong. So be sure to look at these things and to say, how can I fix this problem? Is this problem me or my rifle? If it's you, you, you could fix it. If it's your rifle, you either have to repair it or try something else. Uh, I gave advice with some guys with the Ruger RPR. Take the whole thing apart, put it all back together tighter. You know, that's one of those other things you can do. Um, you know, there's been some rifles out there that, that had a cold bore shift that shouldn't. And it wasn't stress in the barrel. It was not the proper torque spec between the barrel and the action. Uh, torque setting underneath. I've had guys go up, uh, you know, 10 feet, uh, feet per second, um, inch per second, 10 inch pounds. I take that back. Go up 10 inch pounds on your torques on the screws underneath, your action screws. Instead of 72, go to 80, go to 90, you know, try 100. Play around with these different values to see if that fixes a shift, if you happen to notice one on a rifle that shouldn't. Um, you know, I've, I've seen this before where I've damaged controlled rifles, and 75% of it, it's a case of the shooter. There's probably another 25% where it's the rifle in some way, and out of those, half can be repaired by adjusting settings. There are there's some weird schools of thought out there, believe it or not, where guys do really light specs on their barrel to action torque ratio there. The, the, the amount is, is silly light. Uh, bench rest guys were playing around in that 30 to 45 inch pound space. You know, we tend to want to be around 100. I will tell you like what a TAC Ops rifle, and TAC Ops are just phenomenal hammers. You look at a TAC Ops rifle, there's no cold bore, there's no variations, they put them in one hole. These are built off Remington 700s, and he's around 250 inch pounds, 250. So Mike is doing things so much different. He'll tell me on the 300 Win Mags, he's even more than that. And the most phenomenal 300 Win Mag I've ever seen shoot in my life was a TAC Ops rifle. I've seen these rifles come out of cases off of airplanes, first shot out of the gates, and they're putting them in the same hole. I mean, these things are, are spectacular. They have some really high specs on what they're doing there. So that's something you need to look at at your own rifle system. Make sure you're not dealing with a gunsmith who's reading bench rest forms with your tactical rifle and just giving you, you know, something like these 45-inch pound on that where, you know, it's just, it's wrong. It, it needs more, and that's why you'll tend to see these shifts take place for guys. That's something that I think isn't out there enough, that not a enough people are consistent in their, their builds on these, on these rifles. I mean, when you look at AIs, they're bonded, embedded, and all these different things. They're, they're, they're going up there pretty high on their specs, and that's why the AIs are known for not having cold bores as well. That's kind of why I gravitated, because they were the military sniper rifle 
you know, they're the holy grail of sniper rifles. That That's just something that you have to look at is at your system. you, you got to go through a process of, you know, damage control. Is it the rifle? Is it the shooter? The shooter's the easiest one to check right off the bat because you just bring a second rifle out. I mean, it could be a 22, shoot 5, 10 rounds out of it, and then go to your rifle. It's still got a cold bore shift. Now you got to start tightening things down, looking at different parts of your, your system and, and what it's doing. you got to start mapping it. I'm a big proponent of mapping your systems out there. Taking a sheet of paper and, and, and mounting it to a, like a piece of cardboard that come and goes with me to the range every time. Shoot a group, see what goes on, change something up, come the next day, do it again, the next time, do it again, and analyze your data. Your precision rifle shooters, data is key. I mean, and, and I'm going to kind of go on another off track here. The, the, the idea that these ballistic computers are replacing our data books is wrong. I ran it on this before. Use a data book. Use some. I don't care if you go to the grocery store and buy one of those black and white composition notebooks and, and you have a date in that for your rifle. My composition notebook is for this rifle. This composition notebook is for this rifle. Write that stuff down. If you see me with three ballistic computers sitting on my pad, I got a Kestrel, I got a cold bore, I got my iPhone. I'm still writing stuff down. You're never going to not see me with something written down. I'm always writing that stuff down. Predicted versus analyzed. What I want it to do versus what it's really doing. The only way you're going to fix any of these things is by analyzing your data. And if you're going off your computer because your computer just said dial 3.2 and you dial 3.2 and hit the target somewhere and you called it good, you're never going to learn anything. You're never going to improve because what you need to do is where did it hit? Why did it hit? How much do I have to adjust to get it closer to my center hold? All this information is there. The question is, are you recognizing it? Are you recording it? And are you analyzing it after the fact? I mean, you want to get away from your wife and kids? Read your data. Analyze the data. Put it up on the computer. I mean, that's why so much of this software stuff now, or not even software, but your lab radars and your magneto speeds are giving you hard copy of stuff. Because we need that hard copy to look at this data. And cold bores can be addressed in the exact same way. They're not a normal way of doing business. You shouldn't be thinking about it too much. I mean, one of the things I do, and it's kind of funny, but it's, it's a head game, and it's all in my head. I take a three-quarter inch circle. I cross here and pie it in the center. I'm cutting it right down the middle in the center. I, I put my crosshairs dead center. I'm quartering the target. That's how we always want to look at it. I want to quarter the target. I want to be one click to the left. That's where I zero. That's where my important zeros are. Now, there's a lot of times I'm moving stuff around and switching. It, it may bounce around that circle a little bit. But if I'm paying attention, I'm doing things the way I want, I want a center lined on my horizontal, and my vertical is going to be one click to the left. That, for me, is perfect. If I do make a trigger control mistake, I know my trigger control mistake is about a half minute on a bad day to the right. So if I'm using a three-quarter with one click to the left, I'm covered. I'm still touching that black. 
I still should be good no matter, um, you know, no matter who the situation or what the situation is. I, I know that if I make a mistake, I could fix it is, is kind of what I'm getting at. Um, so I'm centered one click to the left, and that's going to help me in all my situations, including a cold bore. Uh, you know, it could be a case where if I know everything's good and I need a perfect centered punch hit on something small, I can go to the edge and I can kind of play around that edge of the, of the, of the circle and use that as a finer aiming point than quartering in the center. But I like to quarter my targets. I like to look at my stuff that way. And I want to make sure I'm dialed up and centered for all that stuff. So... Knowing where my cold bore is, knowing where my data is, knowing where my zero is, is super, super important when, you know, your life or your score depends on it. And, and so that's why I want to get back to data books, recording this data, analyzing what's going on and not just default to, that's what the computer told me, that's what I did, I hit the target somewhere, okay? I, 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 like Mike had said in a previous podcast, we spend a lot of time working on the targets and cleaning them up and painting them and making sure we could see where we hit. I spend way too much time painting that steel out there, not just letting it get beat up because I kind of want to know what's going on. I want to see what's going on. And I can see that I hit, but I want to see where I hit. And so that's something that, that I'm looking at. Cold bore all the way up to... And um, the other thing, a question that came up, and um, that goes into seeing and knowing and, and understanding, and it goes back to the reticle discussion we had. And, and I know I'm gonna I'm bouncing around a little bit here, but you know, keep the flow going. And with that reticle discussion, somebody asked about holding versus dialing. And and I have some sort of rule of thumbs that I use for myself. It's personal. Um, there's not a whole lot of rhyme or reason other than it's where I'm comfortable at. But holding was meant for danger space, minute of man, get the shot off where you're lacking time and opportunity. Because distance should give you time and opportunity. Farther are we away, the better we should be able to set up the shot, take our time, and, and make it happen. Where when you're inside that danger space where fire can come, be coming back or where we're inside this sort of comfort zone that we have in competition where we know, you know, we got two MOA, a fudge factor, the targets are close because they're alternate positions and all these things. Holding's a viable option for me within that 200 to 800 yard zone. Okay, two to eight is my happy space. Now there's exceptions to that rule and I'm going to go to oh, cross my exceptions but I do this for both wind and elevation that between 200 and 800 yards, I'm going to hold wind 90% of the time. Now, if the wind's increased or the wind's crazy or something's going on and I'm getting beyond that three mils, well, then I'm going to bring me back into the center. For elevation holds, what we were doing was picking a spot for us. It was 400 yards. We want 100 yard zero on these rifles, and we can always dial up to a point blank range zero. So instead of zeroing at two or 300 yards, you could just dial up to that when you need to use that point blank range zero information. Same thing 
with targets at distance. And it came military-wise, her primary target. 400 yards out, I set up for that. If something comes out or starts causing a little hate in and around that danger zone area, that danger space for me, which is about 600 meters for artillery is our, is our danger space, but between you know that 200 and 800 yards could be considered our personal danger space where somebody can get effective fire back at us. You know, I'm going to hold and, and use the reticle. I'm going to dial that 400 on to, to, to keep me in the middle, and that gives me about that 3 mil of space on the, on the reticle to be in the center. I can see enough. If I miss high, low, left, right, I still can see. But once I start getting past that 3 mil, I want to start bringing me back into the middle so I can see everything again. I want my field of view opened up. I want all these things in my favor. I've already lowered my power because I want to be fast and dynamic. I want a wide field of view. And, and I know I'm going to be moving quickly, so I, I need to see a little better and I need to be steadier. So I'm, I'm going to lower the power a little bit. And that still keeps me in a happy space for holding, both in wind and elevation. Now, if I have a smaller target and I need to fine-tune on it, and this is my caveat, my rule of thumb with windage, is I'll dial back into the center again if it's a MOA or sub-MOA target. If it's a 2-MOA and bigger, I'm holding. I'm going all day and I'm having happy. The other situation that's the caveat is the ELR stuff where I run out of elevation and I may have to hold. I don't like it. It's a necessary evil. And now with, with the uh, the TACO unit, the Charlie TACOM Charlie unit, or the TACOM HQ Charlie unit, that's making it so you don't have to hold anymore. Um, that, that TACO unit is what we call it. Just works fantastic. And, and it gives you all that ability to dial. So it, it, it's 100 yards zero. Put the Charlie unit in front. I'm getting as much as 150 mils extra. I can go anywhere I want. It's adjustable. And, and I can just use the scope to fine tune. So I'm not compromising my, my head and cheek and, and my elevation. And I don't need the crazy six inch tall angled base that's pointing at my barrel. The Charlie unit takes care of that. There's a situation in ELR shooting where I'll hold the reticle out at the edges where I don't like to be holding um, the reticle. So, you know, distance, time, opportunity, I should really be getting in and on it behind the shot. If I have to hold the reticle, I'm going to reset everything with the reticle hold, my natural point of aim, all those things with the reticle hold combined. I'm not going to set up my, my shot and then move the scope and compromise that. I want to make sure I start off and I create create the best hold possible when I'm in ELR distances. But again, my general rule of thumb with holding versus dialing, two to 800, I'm going to hold. Uh, smaller targets, I'm going to dial. And, and for elevation, I always try to dial when I can. Given time and opportunity, if I'm not having to or forced to hold, I'm going to dial. And here's why for elevation. Our eyes like a fixed aiming point. It's not happy with the grids. As much as we can get away with grids and guys will talk up a grid, our eyes don't like it. Our brain don't like it. They make more mistakes than they're going to admit. They're always holding the wrong line under time and speed. They're always doing these things. And, and let's face it, nobody's won an F-class match holding yet. Okay? They're, 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 
dialing that point target and in the in the reticles while they work and they and they have a lot of information in there there is a case of too much information and that's how i feel now don't get me wrong i taught horace i was part of what rifles only that we were the horse instructors for a bunch of years we, we, we were saw we were able to do just as well without it we set up the same exact drills using plain mill dots and we were equally as effective and in some ways more effective because we didn't make the mistake of holding the wrong line so that's something that um you you, you got to look at it's training the horse was designed for a guy who had more money than sense didn't practice didn't train but liked to spend his money shooting stuff so the horse came about for him to go just hold this line on that animal and you'll hit it and you know the funny thing was he was never that far away to begin with and so it, it was an extension out of of shooting this big giant game animals people the whole thing minute a man and it never really worked that well for point shooting you know area you know area versus point minute a man versus sub moa so you have a combination of hold versus dialing and and that's not a bad way to go but it's not a miracle solution out there it's not some sham wow you know it, it, it's it's more shake weighty and and i know guys like it i go guys are effective using it and, and yeah they are within the context of what they're doing but it's not my personal preference man and mike's into it and, and i know he digs on that stuff but i don't and it's just mills or just them away or just whatever and it does work but you gotta practice you got to understand your holds. You got to understand the limitations of it. Believe me, I I have done all these matches and, and done the holds and, and things, um, you know that we've talked about, and I'm effective with it. But I I just don't see it as this magic bullet the way it's talked up. Uh, the hype is much bigger than the reality. Is I guess what I'm trying to say. Uh, you know, I have them. I own them. I shoot them. I'm not a fan of them. It's a, sort of a necessary evil. If it wasn't for Sniper's Hide, and if it wasn't for all the questions, I'd probably avoid them altogether. Because I, I just, you know, my first impression of it's too busy, my brain don't like it, is the right answer in my brain, in my mind. And, and there's a lot of people that'll force themselves into an unnatural state trying to get this stuff to work for them. And I've seen guys, I mean, to me, it's a, it's a lowest common denominator. That's what it was designed to do. And it's a good training tool so you can understand mills and holding and what you're looking at. But then pull it away and just let your mind kind of overlay that to a regular reticle. As I talked about in a previous podcast, you know, if I have a target, it's pretty quick for me to slide over my windage and say, okay, I need 1.5 mil of wind. Slide over to 1.5, I need, need a 2 mil hold and slide down to the 2 mark until I'm lined up and send the shot. Slide over 1.5, slide up to 2, send the shot. Saying if I got to go down and hold down, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to not use wind because I'm probably holding down. So I'm just going to slide that reticle down and make the shot. But, you know, you start going, okay, I need grid. If you're in 8 mils down and you've got 8 mils of grids, man, your brain is not a happy camper. I mean, that's a thousand yard shot and, and, you know, depending on the size of the target, you may make it up, but I'd rather just dilate and hold center and quarter the target properly. You're still going to quarter it with a grid, 
but you got to make sure you're all in the right place. You know what I mean? And, and it, to me, it just gets too cluttered and, and a little bit too much. But like I said, it's Mills. It works. We know Mills works. We know you could do it with other things, so you could do it with this. Like I said, it's lowest common denominator. It's crutch for people who don't train. And believe me, they're not going as well as somebody who knows the other ways better because uh, they're going to be faster. They just are. Their, their brain doesn't have to count as much, doesn't have to look as much. And, and I find you can be every bit as faster and quicker. I know one of the early core K&M matches, they had a stage. Um, 300 to 800 yard targets, no ranging or milling. They were just sort of random, but you could tell they're about every 100 yards, plus or minus. You had to run 25 yards up two flights of stairs on a tower, drop down, not change your scope, shoot the target. I did it with my Schmidt and Bender MSR reticle, hitting all of them in 54 seconds. That was one of the quickest times on the course. Didn't need a Horus, didn't need any of these holdover reticles. I used an MSR, which is p fancy P4 fine, you know, and I was able to, to knock them all out because I understand what's going on. And down there with the caliber I was shooting, I needed at the farthest target like a half mil of wind. So I'm never really off that far into space, as people put it. But understand, it's not space. Those lines extend just like the grid, and, and you can do all that. But... That's where I'm at. I mean, the cold bore stuff, do your homework. Understand what kind of cold bore you're going to use. A clean cold bore, a fouled cold bore, cold body, cold mine, cold shooter. And recognize the differences between them. And when you recognize them, you can address them. But a cold bore deviation is not a natural thing. It should not be there. Especially if you're shooting tactical rifles. That's the whole point of us making tactical rifles bulletproof and as big and heavy as they are because we're eliminating that stuff. If you got a, in a hunting rifle because it's some pencil-thin barrel, well, it shouldn't be too big a deal because of the, the one or two rounds you're going to shoot. But that's one of those things you would do. Shoot three rounds and map it. Shoot three rounds and map it and see where the walk comes in. See if something comes in. There's a lot of stress in some of those pencil-thin barrels because they're taking so much material down. And... You're, you are running so much heat through them, but that they generally go, the hotter you're going to get them, the worse they're going to get. And it's mirage issues, it's barrel movement issues, it's all these things. But when we're running big, heavy MTU contours, M24, whatever the case may be, that stuff's designed so you don't have these variations when the rifle or your life depends on it. That's why we're doing these big, expensive, heavy-ass rifles because it's designed to eliminate these problems other competition people see because they're lighter thinner and not as well built i mean they're custom built that doesn't make them bulletproof i mean that's why an ai is bonded you drop it out of a helicopter and then you can still fight with it you know do that with your hunting rifle and you're probably not going to survive so something to think about and, and, and something I think everybody should be looking at, record your data, analyze your data, write your data down. That's what I'm asking you to do. I'm just asking you to be better educated. I'm not shooting down your decisions. I'm not trying to make it like, you know, you did something wrong buying X product or Y. Hey, man, if it works for you and you're a happy camper with it, two thumbs up. No, no, no drama. 
but understand what you're looking at. Understand there are ways around some of these things that, that people take for granted. And a lot of it is training, 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 the fundamentals. Uh, we, we used to have a saying down there, as Jacob saying, there's, there's not a single shooting problem that can't be solved with the proper applications of the fundamentals of marksmanship. If you execute the shot and it's within reason, you will solve that problem. If you have to get hardware creative or doing any of this other stuff, well, then, you know, you have to look at it. And by hardware creative, I, I'm not saying, you know, adding a, a, a taco unit, a Charlie unit in front of your scope so you could shoot 3,000 yards. That's not what I'm talking about. You know, if, if you're trying to do something fancier and to get around the fundamentals, you know, if, if, the, if the, the trick is... Well, gee, don't put your shoulder into the shot and just hold your finger to the side and get your, you know, get your trigger weight down to eight ounces so you're not dis disturbing and everything and pin it into the barricade with this $400 accessory and, you know, don't touch the rifle. Are you really a marksman? I mean, come on. What are you doing if you're trying to get a hardware solution to a marksmanship problem? I want you to be a marksman. I want you to be a well-rounded shooter. I mean, we already know the world's full of great bad shooters out there, guys who have learned to adapt to their flaws. But if we bring it down and we bring it back to original intent, if we look at these things and say, a good trigger press is going to get me the hit, well, that's not really that hard to do. Rather than saying, oh, I need a six-dasher to hit that target. Well, do you need a six-dasher or do you need better trigger? Do you need better fundamentals? Do you need to understand how to build a more stable position? You know, I understand you're beating the clock and the hardware stuff helps. I'm all about it. I, you know, I'll, I'll play that game when I have to. But I'd rather you go out to small local matches and learn this stuff correctly. And you know what? Say you don't get every shot off, but they're all hits. I'd rather you do that than to jam your rifle into something and not touch it and just tap it with your finger, making sure that you got your hit. You know what I mean? I, like I said, it's, it's, it, it's such a confusing dynamic that we're, we're forcing people into one direction when we should be keeping everybody down the middle of marksmanship. So where do you go with equipment and product versus training and fundamentals? To me... Those fundamentals will succeed for you. If you're going to go play a game that says you got to do X, Y, Z in 90 seconds, well then, yeah, you may want to kind of default to some of the hardware they're using. But if you're out there and you're going to shoot something for real and it's a hunting situation or LE situation, I don't want to really depend on the hardware. I want to know I'm the guy in charge. I want to make sure that, you know, some weird you know, error because that my time and opportunity is 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 getting compressed that i can break that shot un under pressure when you look at the sniper's high dot drill target 21 dot drill target it went down from a standing shot to uh, uh, from standing to prone in six seconds and guys get 100 percent. so they're standing up they drop down behind the rifle they break the shot in six seconds it's pretty good you know, I really don't see where doing that same thing 
but then understanding the, the limitations of your position and, and, and working to fix those can't be better than spending $400 and jamming it into a barricade and coming up and just tapping a, an eight-ounce trigger, where in every other situation, you're, you're kind of bordering on that unsafe because mm-hmm. you just breathe on that trigger and it fires. You know, I, I'd rather you have a one-and-a-half-pound trigger and you're the marksman behind it than an eight-ounce trigger relying on the rifle not falling off the barricade. So that's just my thoughts on it. Um, more stuff. All right, I'm going to get going. I got more questions. I got more stuff I'm going to address. I want to do the longer stuff, the optics things with Mike. He's in there, and he sees what people are asking to buy and selling and, and all that stuff. I do have my finger on the pulse with optics, but it's got, like I said, it's getting to be so crazy. I just can't remember them all anymore. Can't memorize everything. I mean, I got stuff here that that it, it's new and it's like, yeah, that's in the same spot as this one. That's built here. I mean, they're they're all built from the same four places, you know, give or take. But um, you know, that's all. That's all I'm saying is is think about your fundamentals. Think about your marksmanship. Think about analyzing your data and recognizing what you're doing and when that shot goes where it goes and, and why it went where it went. Precision rifles cause an effect. If you do this, then this will happen. So the more you understand those causes and effects, the better educated you are, the better marksmanship you're going to be. Thanks for listening to the Everyday Sniper. Uh, we'll give you some more, and then we're going to get together this weekend with Mike. But uh, really appreciate the, the, the effort, the time, the whole thing. Uh, you guys have just been fantastic. Uh, the follows, uh, we're over my 500, which is I asked for in the beginning. So 10 episodes in, you beat that. And, and now we're, we're only up to 12, and, and it's just been a fantastic ride. Stop over to Sniper's Hide. Ask your questions there. Uh, it's a lot easier for me to read this stuff and answer it there. I am answering some Facebook stuff, but I'm just not on Facebook as much. Um, so uh, I, I recommend you come over to Sniper's Hide. Give Mike at Mile High a call if you got a specific optics question. They sell mostly everything. So if you've got a, a, a very pointed, specific question, call Mike up during the week and let him answer it for you. Give him a call at Mile High. Um, he'll pick it up, and those guys are great at answering that stuff. If you got a mount question, what model mount is that? Then it's in your video, Frank. I have no idea, guys. Uh, they just gave me the one that fit my rifle, and it worked. So that's what's going on. Frank at Sniper Side, Mike at Mile High, the everyday sniper. Cheers.